0: Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Peter Melman. Peter is a writer and producer who previously worked on Seinfeld. He's also the author of It Won't Always Be This Great. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today.
1: Thanks. I was kind of hoping for episode 130, but, you know, you get what you get.
0: Well, if it goes great, maybe we'll have you back in nine. Okay. Well, tell me what initially attracted you to writing in the first place.
1: You know, that's a good question. I don't really know. I I kind of, when I was a freshman in college, I just kind of like wandered over to the student newspaper office. And I don't even know why I did it. But, you know, like, I I guess there was something about journalism that really hooked me in. And, um, you know, it wasn't writing per se exactly. It was more like just you know, like, I, I, there was something about making a dozen calls to find out some little bit of information that was kind of thrilling to me. The enjoyment of the actual writing kind of just
0: came along with it. What was your first paid writing gig?
1: I wrote a an article for the sports section of the Washington Post about... Um, people who hung out over the rail at Laurel Raceway in Maryland.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. So how did sports writing, and I know you did some writing for for GQ and the New York Times, how did how did writing columns and articles transition into writing for television for you?
1: From like nineteen eighty five through like 1990, I was basically a freelance magazine writer writing for all those publications and all these women's magazines and everything that you mentioned. And then, um, you know, when I moved out here, I bumped into Larry David, who I had met like once or twice before, and... um he said he was doing this he was going to be doing this little t v show with Jerry Seinfeld. He said maybe you could write a script. He had no idea that I'd never really even written dialogue before. He just knew I was a writer, so he kind of assumed that I had but um you know I actually he asked for a writing sample he could pass on to Jerry, and I gave an essay that I wrote in the New york Times and um you know Jerry just took a shine to it and uh I lucked out.
0: So you got hired off of a spec that wasn't even a spec script. It was a an essay you wrote for The Times, which is pretty awesome. And you were hired right away? Were you there for the first season?
1: I was not. The first season was only four episodes. I wrote um, my first script um, during the second season, which was only 13 episodes. You know, the first season, they didn't even have a writing staff. The second season, they had, like, two writers. And, um... Mine was the first kind of what they call outside script that was produced.
0: The show obviously went on to become one of the most successful and iconic television shows ever made. When did you think that this kind, that kind of success might be possible?
1: You know, I thought right away that the show was something special. I, You know, I, I actually, you know, I wasn't even sure I wanted to be in television, but you know when Larry and Jerry invited me to write a script they showed me the first 3 episodes that they had produced and I was kind of blown away so i thought that the show would be successful but you know nobody could have anticipated what it became
0: prior to to Seinfeld you're writing freelance articles for magazines and newspapers which is a very different kind of writing than writing scripts was writing in a writer's room, your first collaborative writing environment?
1: We didn't have a writer's room. We didn't, co- you know, we we just, you know, came up with different storylines for the different characters in the show. And, you know, you individually pitch them to Larry and Jerry. And, you know, they'd say, I like that story. I don't like that one. And you know, then you'd pre- pretty much cobble a story together on your own. It was not like any other show where it's all collaborative. I don't think I could have survived in that kind of system.
0: So you would go in and pitch something for George. You would want George to do X or Y, and there would be no beat breakdown. They would just say, okay, we like that, go off and write it?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> so was Larry running this? was Larry running this, I don't want to call it a room, was he running this process when you first started? And how often would things get cut after you brought them in? If, he, if you say to him, "I like this idea for a lane," and then he, uh, you go off and write it, would he then rewrite it, or would he cut it all together, or would he just take it as it was?
1: No, he generally gives you notes, and then you'd go back and write, write it again, do a rewrite, and at a certain point, he and he and Jerry would kind of take it over and do their own, like, pass on it. So it all depended on how good a job you did, you know, as far as determining how much you would be rewritten. But, you know, he did
0: a lot, a lot, a lot of rewriting. Now, at a certain point, the show obviously becomes a a massive success. Was there more network involvement at that point? Were they trying to change any way that the scripts were written?
1: Oh, no, not at all. First of all, the network was hardly involved at all because... You know, it wasn't under the umbrella of primetime comedy. It was under the umbrella of late-night comedy. This guy, Rick Ludwin, you know, the, nobody at NBC really liked the show very much, but this guy, Rick Ludwin, who ran late-night and and comedy specials, he loved it, so he took it under his budget. So he was not a guy who was used to giving the kind of network notes that you normally get. You know, I used to joke that, you know, after every table read, Rick would go, great script, guys, and then go home. But, you know, he's kind of a hero in all this because, you know, he championed the show. So we had virtually no network interference.
0: And obviously, as the show became successful, the actors became stars. Did you have angles that you wanted to do that was later shot down by some of the actors?
1: Oh, no, no, no. They never shot down an idea. The actors, you know, they, they did you know, they saw the script for the first time at the table read and I mean, you know, once in a while they might express some concern about something like that, but you know, we had built up a level of trust. So, um, you know, they were more inclined to go with what we were doing.
0: Were the other writers in the room once once the once there were a larger group of writers assembled, were they stand ups, were they writers who had written on other shows, or were they like you who were just sort of come from a different background altogether?
1: All types. You know, there was one season, my second season on the show, which was probably the best season of the, show, of, the of the entire show. You know, season four, basically. But that was, you know, the implant and the the contest and the outing and, you know, we had me and Larry Charles, and then there were four uh, stand-up comics who basically were there to come up with ideas. After that, you know, we got writers from other shows. You know, there were some Letterman writers came on, and, you know, then you get a few writers from Harvard, and, you know, those Harvard guys, they, they, they start, you know, breeding within your... within your staff, and all of a sudden like there's like eight guys from Harvard who worked on The Lampoon, you know. So, um, there was nothing, there was no set system of how people arrived at the show. It just happened.
0: All of Seinfeld is now on Hulu, and because of this, a lot of sites have started ranking all the Seinfeld episodes. Vulture yeah, did I a know. list. It's
1: they... just amazing to me every time I see that. Every time I see one of those every time I see one of those lists, I'm just shocked by like how people actually don't even get the show like they have not, their rankings are so bad, it's amazing.
0: I completely agree, and I'm always amazed i'm one I'm someone who I loved the show when I was a kid it it came on when I was like eleven years old, and I watched it then and I loved it, and then it was on reruns when I was like a late teenager. And you have a very t- different sense of humor when you're 18 and 19 than you do when you're 11. And I still loved it then. Then it was on reruns again when I was like 25. Again, different sense of humor. I still loved it. Now I'm an adult. I'm 35, and I'm still like, wow, this is an amazing show. But I'm always amazed at the people who think the show is about Kramer. The the, the people who are always in love with the Kramer episodes, I just feel like are missing the whole point of the Seinfeld and George thing.
1: You're You are so on the money. I mean, you know... You know, I I would say that I was the only one of the writers, you know, other than other than Larry, who enjoyed mostly writing for Jerry and Elaine, you know, and those are the characters that have to have had to have strong episodes, you know, like Kramer. It's all this, you know, stuff that's very big and, you know, and it got. His stories kind of got less and less realistic. I mean, you know, one day he's wearing Joseph and the Amazing Technicolors dream coat, you know, and then he's making salads in his sink, and you know, he's riding the back of a and ladder. You know, I have no interest in in episodes like that. You know, that just I I really you know kind of took pride in, in adhering to Larry's original concept of the show, which was small. Universal moments, you know, little slices of life that blow up. You know, that's what the show was about. And if you didn't have a good Elaine story in your episode, to me it was like impossible to have a great episode.
0: How many women were there writing when you first started? None. Oh, wait, no, that's not
1: correct. One. So my first year, um, Elaine Pope was there. My second year, there were no women. And then Carol Liefer. Came on and, um, and Marjorie Gross, and, you know, Jennifer Crittenden. But, you know, overall, there weren't that many.
0: So on Vulture's list, which the top is okay, but the middle is just bad. They listed their favorite episode as the contest. Number two is the subway, three is the opposite, four is the fire, and five is the Hamptons. What are your five favorite episodes?
1: Well, you know, the contest is way up there. Um... I happen to like the love the deal that was one Larry wrote about when Elaine and Jerry try to figure out a way that they could, you know, keep their friendship and yet still have sex. I thought that was like absolutely a brilliant episode. You know, I like the implant and the sponge a lot. I like, um, you know, and there are certain episodes I'm just proud of because of, you know, what they got out there, you know, like, in the outing episode, you know, the whole thing with not that there's anything wrong with it, you know, that was like a stroke of genius, um, Larry and Jerry's part, because, you know, they went through the whole episode kind of slamming their own politically correct, political correctness and, you know, constantly saying not that there's anything wrong with it when, you know, their faces were saying there's something horribly wrong with it. You know, so I just love the line that that one walked. And, um, you know, I. Um, you know, there there are a whole bunch of other episodes I really love. You know, the um, the fix up was a pretty great one. Uh, the Hamptons was pretty great. You know, there were there were a lot of pretty really great episodes. I mean, Yada Yada was pretty strong.
0: And I think what Yada Yada, of course, became a huge a huge thing. And I think what I always loved about the show is that the characters, you know traditional sitcoms, and Seinfeld did this a little bit too, but traditional sitcoms there are, for the most part, good people who make a mistake and then in the end do the right thing. And I always liked that like George and Jerry would do this too when they would double down on their douchebaggery. That's to yeah. me what separated the show. They wouldn't have that moment of realization where, oh, and this is what we learned today, kids. It was always like, no, we are a-holes and we're going to double down on that. And that's to me what made it unique.
1: Exactly. These are bad people who get in a situation, as you say, double down on it, make it worse, and at the end it all comes out horribly. You know, I mean, and also, you know, there are four friends who hang out together all the time, and they'll screw each other at the drop of a hat. And yet, you know, on the next episode, they're best of friends again. You know, and I just love that kind of dynamic because, you know, like I was saying in the office one day, you know, in New York especially, you know, you're at these restaurant tables with your friends, and then you look across the room and there's another group just like yours, and all the different groups think they're, like, far superior to the other group in the room. You know, and that's actually what led to uh, David Mandel writing the Bizarro The Bizarro Jerry, because, you know, there was a whole other character, a whole other foursome who kind of reflected our foursome. And, um, you know, I love that about the show, too.
0: What's your least favorite episode?
1: Oh, boy. I mean, you know, I don't like anything. You know, I, I just don't like the big ones. You know, like the Puerto Rican Day Parade kind of represents, like, the worst of it for me. And then, you know, there were certain episodes where it wasn't the point being made was not original and not really artfully carried off. You know, like the one about like the cigar store Indian where, you know, Jerry's accidentally making a bunch of joke, you know, making saying a bunch of faux pas regarding Native Americans. You know, I just thought that was a little clunky. But um, it got harder and harder to do. Those tiny little episodes, you know, because we'd get to a point where somebody would have an idea and we'd go, "Oh, that's a great idea," but we kind of did it in episode three, in season three, you know. So it did get a lot, a little bit harder, but you know, which made me doubly as proud that like the last episode I wrote was the, the um, the yada yada because it was really a small, uh, a four very small little stories going on in that. So, you know, I felt really good about that.
0: Yeah, and it's tough even when you do brilliant things, it's tough not to fall into sitcom cliches at a certain point. Eventually you're on for enough seasons that, you know, someone goes to buy a car and all four characters end up going to buy the car with them. And it's that kind of stuff where it's just like, all right, that's moving beyond that. I think is best for every sitcom.
1: Also, it gets to be a question of you know, where you're doing so well and the show is making so much money that your budget becomes so unlimited that, you know, it almost gets easier to make these big epic ones rather than, you know, the difficulty of focusing in on a tiny little story. You know, the, you know you're kind of a victim of your own success in that way because, you know, the budget got to be unlimited.
0: Obviously, Jerry and Larry have backgrounds with stand-up comedy. Was there anyone there early on that had a background in improvisation? I ask because the the format of Seinfeld, the way it's structured, is almost like a perfect herald. The herald comedy format is you take three unique storylines that, over time, become one. And when Seinfeld's at its best, that's sort of what it did. And I I wonder if anyone there had an improv background early on.
1: Uh, No. That was just kind of this outgrowth of Larry's creative evolution, you know? He just on, you know, he just started doing more and more callbacks in the first, in the second act to stuff that happened in the first act of an episode. And it became kind of the trademark of a show, you know, that was what was tough in a couple first couple of years, because you'd have to, you know, keep up with Larry's creative evolution. It was, um, that was really tough. You know, at first you could kind of really have no Kramer story at all. He could bounce in and out of the apartment once in a while and that was it. And then all of a sudden, you know, he'd be, you know, Larry wanted all four characters doing something and their stories interweaving. You know, it got more and more difficult.
0: After Seinfeld, let's move past Seinfeld. You created and ran your own sitcom on ABC called It's Like You Know. Tell me about the process of getting that show on the air.
1: Well, um, in short, I pretty much made every wrong decision I could possibly make you know, all four of the networks at that time wanted the show and, you know, I didn't go back to NBC just because I wanted to get a little distance from Seinfeld. And, you know, Fox wanted the show so much and I probably should have gone with them, but at the time they kind of felt a little minor leagy to me, which was wrong. And, CBS was always the most depressing place in the world to pitch a show. I mean, like, you know, it was so glum, like I couldn't believe they really wanted it because they never laugh at anything, whereas at the other pitches, they were laughing at everything. And I went with ABC, and which was, you know, kind of a bad idea because I was with DreamWorks. So, you know, the head of DreamWorks was Jeffrey Katzenberg. The head of Disney was Michael Eisner. They hated each other. The head of DreamWorks TV was Dan McDermott, and his ex-wife was Jamie Tarsus. So, you know, you have divorced people at each other. And, um, you know, to kind of free me up from having to do all the show-busy stuff, I had Ted Harbert was, you know, kind of like on as an executive producer, and he had been the head of abc so of course all the people currently at abc you know and him were at odds with each other so you know it was that was a really terrible choice i mean you know it shouldn't have been a choice that i had to make but or i should have gotten a lot more input on it but still it was a bad choice and it was all pretty shocking you know like the first time you know i The the first time I got notes on, you know, like after the table read of the pilot, they you know, they they brought up some little plot point that they thought was off. And I, you know, rifled through my script and I looked at it and I said, no, that seems pretty good. What else you got? And they looked at me like (laughs) I was, you know, like I had just spoken out in favor of incest, like the nerve of me to not, you know, like, you know, to think that we were in adult conversation here where people could actually have different opinions. It was just, you know, the the actual doing of the show was really wonderful and everything like that, and I, I completely loved doing it, but, you know, all the political stuff just wore me out. You know, and the funny thing is, you know, after the pilot, Andy Ackerman, the Seinfeld director, directed the pilot, and, you know, in that first note session, you know, Andy was as, you know, firm in his beliefs as I was, so when they picked up the show, they would not let me use Andy Ackerman as the director because they thought it would be too much of a united front against them. So, you know, they they kind of ruined their own show, which is basically their job anyway.
0: When you assembled writers, were you did you run a writer's room in a traditional fashion, or did you run it like the way you had done it in Seinfeld? Just like at Seinfeld. So no official room, people would pitch ideas, then go off and write it?
1: Yeah. Except most, uh, except most of the writers I had, you know, I, I, I it, you know, this was all very eye-opening to me. Even though I had been at Seinfeld, you know, for seven years, or, uh, you know, it was all very eye-opening to to me about like how little ambition there is in the general, in in like the standard sitcom writer. They don't really want to write. They want to be in that room. They want to sit there till three a.m. shouting out jokes every night. You know, and. To me, that's not even writing. You know, like, the big eye-opening thing was determining that most sitcom writers don't really want to write. They want to be in show business.
0: And how do you deal with that?
1: I end up writing every script myself, pretty much. That was pretty much how I dealt with it.
0: (laughs) And that's obviously how you get burned out as well. So you're dealing with network pressure, you're writing every script yourself, and at that point, are you just saying... I mean, the show, would it make it two seasons and it sort of got caught up in the who wants to be a millionaire going to Five Nights thing? Were you happy that it got canceled almost? Were you done with it at that point?
1: I would be lying if I didn't say there's a tiny bit of relief that you don't have to continue, you know, working at that pace. But the, the larger answer is no, because, you know, like the show was... Going really well. I was really proud of the episodes, and some of them were like fantastic. And you know, and you know, there were a few that weren't going to be seen. That you know, it really bummed me out. I mean, you know, like they were really innovative and interesting. You know, I mean, I did one episode where all the characters remember where they were and what they were doing when they heard that Latrell Spreewell choked his coach. <laughs> yeah, and it was such a great episode, and it never aired you know and um you know so i felt like creatively i was like on a real high and i was really turning out great episodes and and you know dreamworks did too you know because jeffrey katzenberg immediately signed me to another three-year deal so you know i felt really good about the show and um You know, I just didn't care. I just wanted to keep turning out more episodes, even though it was, you know, a super grind. But, you know, I kind of got into the grind. You know, I show up on a Saturday and Sunday in the middle of a week when we were shooting another episode and write the next one, and, you know, that was it. And even though it was really, really hard, you know, I got into kind of a rhythm, and it was great.
0: When you sign these development deals or production deals when you would sign the second one after the show had you did you get another show on the air after that
1: I didn't I mean I shot a couple of pilots but I didn't and you know some of them you know in a way <laughs> you know it's funny you know like Jeffrey Katzenberg when he signed me to the deal he goes look you know I want you I want you to keep doing shows because I really think you could revolutionize TV and it was like the greatest compliment I ever got and yet he was almost victimized by that, com- by that comment because I decided to try to revolutionize TV. The next, the next pilot I wrote was what I described as sitcom noir. I mean, it was a dark running series about, you know, like the last good person on earth who happened in the pilot. He happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and he gets arrested for, for a murder. And it would have been like, it was kind of like airplane mashed together with Twin Peaks. And, you know, I totally loved it. And, you know, and the amazing thing was ABC was the only network that was like just about to go with it. And then they called me in for another meeting and they said, what do you think will happen? You know, say in episode 18. And I said, 18? I don't know what's going to happen in episode 3 but you know I'm aware of the fact that it's got to continue to be funny and interesting not a good enough answer they didn't go with it you know it was that was like crushing to me like you know infuriating.
0: Did you end up finding yourself in a situation some of the writers who have come on have talked about how they get a deal and they make some pilots but they don't go and then they're still owed money so the network or the studio just places them on another show. Did that happen to you?
1: No, they weren't allowed to do that with me. Um, you know, I had... Um, I forgot what they, how they refer to that, but, um, you know, it was in my contract that I couldn't be, you know, put on another show.
0: What mistakes do you see young writers, young screenwriters, young TV writers make most often? You know,
1: I think they're not getting a strong enough writing background to begin with. You know, I mean, it really helped me that I was in journalism and I was used to writing. And, you know, and they're like super influenced by the shows that are just merely successful as opposed to great. And, um, and you know, I really think another big thing is just they're not really – equipped to do it because they haven't lived any life at all. You know, it's it's really hard to turn out interesting stories if, you know, you're 22 and all you've done is, you know, graduate from college. You know, all of a sudden you're going to start writing about, you know, people in New York or something like that. It it doesn't really work that way. You know, it, it really pays to get some kind of stronger footing in in all kinds of writing. And, um, you know, but like I said, writing seems like it's incredibly secondary to just being in show business. You know, there's nothing like they want more than to walk around and say, you know, I'm a writer for this show, blah, blah, blah. You You know, they walk around saying, I'm a writer, like they're Philip Roth. And they haven't written anything.
0: Are you still writing on television shows? I know you've written a novel recently. Are you still trying to get TV on the air?
1: No. I mean, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't rule it out, but, you know, I'm not actively doing it. You know, something, if something comes to mind in the right circumstances just happen to fall into place, I would definitely do it. But I'm totally happy with, you know, writing novels now and doing... I've, I just started doing a little stand-up.
0: You just started now for the first time. Can you believe it? How's that going?
1: It's going great. I mean, it's like really fun and um, and pretty interesting, and um, and maybe just because I don't have that much at stake, I'm not at I, I you know haven't been at all nervous doing it or anything like that. It's actually kind of come very easy, and I'm pretty serene when I'm up on the stage. You know, like I barely move. You know, and. I'm completely contrary to what the modern trend is in stand-up. You know, everybody's like observational about their own lives and super high energy, and I'm totally not observational, no energy, you know, almost monotony, almost like, you know, I don't really want to be here, but I said I would.
0: What kind of intro are you getting when you go onto stage? Are they introducing you as someone who's written novels and has been a writer for Seinfeld, or are you just going out cold with your name? I'm curious if if you introduce the background, if you'd get a different response to the material.
1: That's a really, 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 really good question. The thing is, I am being introduced, you know, in regard to Seinfeld, because then I come out there And I have kind of a misdirection opening, you know. I come out there and I say, I guess most of you know me as the guy, and I think I'm going to say Seinfeld, but I say, you know, I guess most of you know me as the guy who impregnated Roe from Roe v. Wade. (laughs) So it's like this good change-up, and I like it because, you know, like it does give me a little cachet, and yet at the same time I'm totally avoiding
0: it. How much how much uh, material are you doing right now? Are you doing open mics five minutes or are you doing headlining sets?
1: You know, somewhere in between. I haven't done, you know, like open mics yet. Um, I'm, I I do like, usually like 10 to 15 minutes. I think uh, it's getting to the point where I would feel more comfortable if I could do 15 to 20, but um, like tonight I'm doing it. Um, tonight I'm on kind of a, a good a good stage with, um, you know, some really good comics, you know, like John Mendoza and Wendy Liebman. So, um, you know, it, uh, I'll be doing probably 10 to 12 minutes.
0: You've been a professional writer in many forums. You've done magazine and newspaper writing. You've done sitcom writing. You've run your own show. You've been an author, You're even writing stand up now. Is being a working writer what you expected it to be?
1: No, I don't know. I really, you know, I had no expectations and no plans. I've I've never been someone who sets goals, you know, like, it's so funny. It's kind of adorable when you hear, you know, kids who are in college now, and they're always going, my goal is, you know, and I'm always like, it's very sweet, you know. But, you know, part, part of me always feels like setting goals is like, why limit yourself? So, um you know, being being a working writer has been fascinating and fun, and um, I don't know if I ever would have anticipated a day when I'm sitting at home writing all the time,
0: but um, it's pretty great. You've been listening to Peter Melman. Peter is a writer and is the author of the novel It Won't Always Be This Great. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Peter Melman. That's M-E-H-L-M-A-N. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Russ, this was really a pleasure.